0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. proper academic calling diane roberts diane roberts is a self-described feminist holds a phd from oxford university and teaches literature and creative writing at florida state she is also a second generation ticket holder and diehard fan of florida state's college football team the seminoles her book tribal which is now available in paperback delves into her own conflicting feelings over college football diane recognizes the various conflicts it perpetuates in terms of race, gender, religion, and class. And yet, she can't bring herself to quit the sport that's become such an integral part of her identity. On today's episode, you'll hear Diane discuss how these conflicts are alive in America today, and what that means for the future of both football and this country. So we're here today with Diane Roberts, author of Tribal College Football and the Secret Heart of America. Diane, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: All right, well, first of all, it would be remiss of me not to ask you, uh, how are the Seminoles doing this season?
1: Um, kind of so-so. We beat Miami last week by one point. Miami games, it doesn't matter who's supposed to be really good and who's not. Uh, the games are always exciting because they're filled with hatred and rage <laughs> and envy and um, several of the deadly sins. And so... This one came down to the last second, as they almost always do. And for once, FSU was on the winning side by one point. Miami missed a kick, which is funny, a point after. It's funny because uh, FSU went through a period of losing to Miami on um, wide right or occasionally wide left field goal tries. So I'm feeling, you know, quite happy. On the other hand, FSU lost to a bunch of people who can actually read from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. <laughs> so, you know, FSU ain't going to be national champions this year. That's for certain.
0: Oh, well, there's always next year.
1: It doesn't bother me. The pressure's <laughs> off now. I can actually enjoy the game without worrying.
0: Well, good. Good, good. Uh, so in your book, you as much as you talk about your love of football, you also talk about um, all these different conflicting feelings uh, regarding college football and the attitudes around it. Uh, so at what point in your life did you start to first notice these feelings Um, what was that like
1: well I, I think that I started feeling conflicted when I was an undergraduate but what I didn't notice was how weird the whole thing was so I think I got more conflicted when I taught at the University of Alabama and had started noticing how weird the whole thing was because you know I had I had always just lived in football culture, and if somebody had asked me about how strange it was, I would have thought that was a ridiculous question. But, you know, a fish doesn't sit around thinking about the peculiarities of water. Um, but more and more, with the injuries and with the attention taken off of academics and universities, everything and that doesn't add a whole lot to uh, say a gender friendly culture where we're trying to
0: touch on some current events related things. Um, there's been this recent controversy with com Kaepernick protesting the National Anthem uh, which touches on a lot of those different things in your book. Um, the sense of hyper-patriotism, um, race relations which you mentioned a bit, uh, plus the fact that it's actually happening on football field. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that and how that uh, kind of ties into all of this?
1: We have completely intertwined football and, and- Patriotism of a sort in America, the militaristic patriotism. Um, other countries seem to get along okay without um, having military flyovers and parachute guys coming in on the field and guns and, you know, we do this on a football field because football for us is a, another kind of a sort of ritualized war. It's a war where theoretically nobody dies, Um, and we celebrate our warlikeness and our attachment to violence. America is a country that seems to believe wholeheartedly in redemptive violence. So we celebrate that on the football field, and now we're so tangled up um, with football equals the military that any display of resistance from a football player is shocking. Um, Basketball players have been doing this for years. They protested the shooting death of Trayvon Martin um, in in, uh, the NBA. And some people sniped, but it wasn't this kind of full meltdown hissy fit that people are pitching over Colin Kaepernick's, I think, very... um, not a game
0: football is a game yeah that's very interesting that um that sort of compare and contrast between football and the military um how they should be different and yet you know like you said they're being conflated so much mm-hmm. um and you also said that that's a problem that really only america has and the rest of the world doesn't seem to they're not the same way as much why do you think that is with america specifically
1: well, I think that America is so big that we just started early on dividing ourselves up into tribes and clans and, you know, sects. S-E, Hence the
0: title tribal.
1: Sects, yes, tribal. Yeah, that we... Football is another way to do it, especially college football. And it doesn't have to be your alma mater. You don't have to have gone to any college or you don't have to have gone to that college. If you decide that's your clan group then fine that's that's who you love and that's who you are for um sometimes it's regional sometimes it's aesthetic i know people that chose florida state because they they just liked it or they chose another team because they liked it um usually it's inherited though or it's because that's what's there and um I might need to start over because my howling cat has broken out of his cage, <laughs> and um, he will howl, and you will hear howling, so let me go and cajole him into, you know, someplace else to be. Sorry, you can edit this, of course.
0: Okay, that's, <laughs> that's fine.
1: I mean, I'm now just get out of here, Hugo. God. I've been away, so he's he's feeling all needy and tragic, and, you know, Aww. anyway... Let me start that over. Okay.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm poor as you go. People choose a
1: tribe. They choose a clan. Um, or one is chosen for them because they are, you know, they inherit it. I inherited it. I, I never dawned on me that I could decide to, say, be a University of Michigan fan. Of course I could. But I didn't because that wasn't the world in which I was raised. I was raised in a world where pretty things were garnet and gold and you never put the color orange next to the color blue or something terrible would happen because those colors belong to the hated rival University of Florida. Think about how irrational that is. and yet it's very human. Humans divide themselves up into groups. We are this group and you are not. What interested me was how college football did it way before everybody started talking about how, quote, divided, unquote, the United States is and, and has been uh, politically, I think, and culturally and socially. College football had been there for a 100 years You know, we'd already had a primary identification. If you were an Alabama fan, you knew that you were better than an Auburn fan. You know, if you were if you were a tide person, you were not a tiger. And you know, tigers were inferior. Or if you were a tiger, you were not a bulldog. And you knew the tigers were superior to bulldogs. Of course, the Bulldogs think they're superior to the Tigers and to the Gators and to, you know, whomever. And this is very satisfying, and I think it just meets some primitive need uh, among us. And when I say primitive, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's a basic human need to say these are my people and those people over there are not my people. It's, of course, more complicated than that because your people, you can have different sorts of groups of people. I could say, you know, uh, journalists are my people and they are and even if a journalist say is a gator or a tiger or some other member of an enemy camp we are still in another tribe that overlaps and so we can get along but you know we have these primary identifications and they're extraordinarily powerful they're amazingly powerful they're irrational they're emotional and they give us a sense of belonging uh, to an identity that is bigger and often better than the one we think we have. So when you're in a stadium filled with 90,000 people all singing the same song and, uh, you know, making the same gesture or chanting the same cheer, then you, you sort of feel very involved and engaged and as if you have something that. No one else has. It's it's a grand feeling. And I, I admire people who don't need that feeling and don't like that feeling. Believe me, I admire them. Um, I think I have an inner barbarian, and it comes out at football games, and the barbarian and I just enjoy ourselves hugely by screaming horribly inappropriate things like, <laughs> pull his head off, son. You know, it's not, it's not something that I think is particularly civilized or <laughs> wonderful, but it does exist, and
0: it is interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, I did also, kind of going off of that, um, you know, talking about people in different groups, um, we are in the midst of election season, so rarely (laughs) is that more prominent than now. Um, And you um, also wrote a a piece recently um, talking about Donald Trump and this sort of locker room masculinity. Um, Obviously, there are so many things to say about the election and masculinity and gender and how often well that's playing a role. Um, but what kind of insight do you think Tribal uh, gives to this campaign that other people might not necessarily think about?
1: Weirdly, Tribal gives more insight than I had kind of hoped. Because <laughs> what I write about a lot now is called toxic masculinity. It's this, this sense of entitlement um, that some men have. And that, you know, because they are large and strong, they can do anything they want, which, of course, is what we teach them on the football field. You know, large and strong is where it's at. You know, small and feeble doesn't get you very far on a football field. Uh, However, football fields are not, despite what the NCAA used to say about football. That's not life. It's not the same as life. It doesn't really prepare you for life unless your life is going out and hitting people. Um, then I guess it's probably really terrific. But Donald Trump has just walked right into this, and he's probably always lived in this weird bubble, talking about how um, you know we're getting to be such a wimpy culture um, that you know, we're worrying too much about NFL olds all hopped up on testosterone and God knows what they don't talk about that they they talk about that torn ACL they're scared of or they talk about um, you know how those bastards are running plays they can't read or you know something much more apropos this is not actually how men talk at least not decent men and I think most people are decent but it is this kind of almost caricature hyper masculine stuff, which we associate again with football. I mean if you look at football it's just it's just a treat to look at in terms of, you know, gender stereotyping. Here you have these huge men on a football field with exaggerated shoulders from the pads, you know, this kind of exaggerated shape sort of male inverted triangle shape, which, you know, if if I can get very scholarly for a minute, you know, it's the Greek chorus. It's that perfect, you know, male shape that was idealized by the Greeks thousands of years ago. And then on the sidelines, you know, the men are doing the hitting and the running and the big action. On the sidelines are tiny, tiny women, you know, in short skirts with pom-poms cheering them on, in reality, these women are really good athletes. I mean, they're cheerleaders are gymnasts. They're not just pretty girls hopping up and down. And they're often very pretty, but they're strong. They've got six-packs that most of the jocks don't have, the male jocks. But they are wearing makeup, and they have giant bows in their hair, like little girls. And they're supporting. And the men are doing all the important stuff. And the girls are going, you're wonderful. And that is a bizarre kind of throwback to much older gender roles. You know, yes, there are women playing tackle football, full contact football, very few and it's seen as well what Dr. Johnson said about a woman preaching, it's not so surprising that it's done well at it, but that it's done at all. So people stare at League, which is just guys hoping for a wardrobe malfunction. That's all that is. But, um, you know, this is a game for men. Men will tell you this over and over.
0: very interesting that um you know this conflict um and so going going back to this masculinity um at one, at one point in the book you taught you mentioned um, we've wrapped masculinity tight as ankle tape around football uh, which i think is also very evident in what we've just talked about um, do you think we might be able to reach a point in the future where we're able to separate these two where football doesn't necessarily have to have this toxic masculinity or do you think football this masculinity is just essential to the survival of football.
1: This is the the central question I think of the whole game and the answer is I don't know. I would like to think that at some point we can complicate masculinity enough to not notice or care if a player is gay. There have always been gay football players, just like there have always been gay soldiers. Um, we just now make a thing out of it because we have fetishized this sort of, not just hyper-masculinity, but hyper-heterosexuality. Um, the very language of football is, is extremely sexualized. Um, there is a really funny bit. I'm going to plug somebody else's book here, but really funny bit in Steve Allman's book Against Football, where an old girlfriend of his who is Italian is watching her first football game, her first pro game, I think, American football. Of course, she's used to soccer. And she says, oh, I get it. It's some kind of homosexual ritual, isn't it? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. And she said, well, no, look, that one chooses his favorite that he stands behind and <laughs> he gets the ball. And then they all he's like, no, 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 that's the tight end and you don't understand. And they're running toward the end zone to score. And apparently she looks at him meaningfully at that point and goes, uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, if you think about it, um, boy, that can, that can get a whole class of undergraduates roiled, I can tell you. But I, I think I see progress. It's just that because football is our most traditionalist game, our most, um, I'd say, most bound to kind of historical masculinity, uh, as we have constructed it, I suppose I'm I'm hedging. 19th century masculinity is what I'm really talking about. Teddy Roosevelt masculinity. And remember, Teddy Roosevelt loved football. You know, he liked as he said rough masculine games. And said at one point, well, if it doesn't kill you, then it's good for you, which is great. Okay, that's nice. Um, I think we're going to have. modify football for it to survive, Um, and that will come from lawsuits. Things in America change when people lose money. That's how it works. So when mothers and fathers start suing Pop Warner for letting five-year-olds tackle, because they can tackle now, five-year-olds, right? When parents of high school players start suing over their kids becoming debilitated you know we already have NFL lawsuits when college players um Business. You can still have beautiful passing plays. You can still have good hits. You can still have a fabulous running game. You can still have all that excitement without quite as much carnage. And that's where we'll have to get to. But we're not there yet because, as anybody involved in the NFL will tell you, hard hits equal audience. You know, that's we watch to see people flattened on the field. Um, A little bit less so in college because at least part of our brains remember that these are 19, 20, and 21-year-old people. They have very mature bodies. Their brains aren't quite joined up yet. Uh, That's why they're in college because, you know, they're not supposed to be unleashed on an unsuspecting world. Um, We just have to change the way that we have, have tended towards gender extremes and start thinking about how we really want to see a game played. And um, traditionalists will hate it. But then I imagine traditionalists started pitching fits about, oh, any change in football rules. In fact, you know, back in the good old days, mob football. You could have 200 on a side and everybody just fought their way through and whoever was left standing with the ball near the goal won. You know, I'll bet they fussed about that too. But everybody's got over it. Mostly.
0: And um, there have been some signs of progress. um, As far as um, some examples I was thinking of, um, the NFL was included a few years ago in um, the No More campaign to stand against domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And recently, the NCAA decided to withdraw their basketball tournaments from North Carolina uh, due to the legislation uh, regarding HB2 and transgender in the the bathroom and all that. Um, do you think these are signs that attitudes around football are shifting?
1: Yes and no. Yes, I think attitudes are shifting a tiny bit and no in the sense that I think this is also about money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know the uh, NBA and the NFL want to look socially responsible think the nba does a slightly better job Mm -hmm. but uh, the nfl definitely wants to look somewhat socially responsible and hb2 in north carolina just took off uh like a great thing and that everybody noticed it and everybody went what (laughs) really that's your big problem i was very pleased that the um Uh, Sorry, let me start over. Mm -hmm. I was very pleased that the NCAA and the ACC both said, we can't be having this. This just can't. We can't endorse this state's backwardness and cruelty and said, well, we'll just take our business elsewhere and did, along with lots of other institutions, uh, you notice it's rare that football leads in this, but they're getting better at following, and they're certainly getting a clue about domestic violence, because the NFL estimates that 40% of their audience is female. Um, women are not going to love a sport where guys just constantly get away with domestic violence, just over over. We've seen enough of that, and women are pushing back. And um, I mean, you notice all the attempts to be women-friendly. Everything during the whole month of October is that nasty Pepto-Bismol pink. For breast cancer awareness, God, I wish they'd find a different pink. It is a most unfortunate pink. (laughs) But you know, the guys are wearing their pink socks, and you know, there are pink ribbons and pink numbers and pink this and pink that, to say, hey we like the women people we want them to live which i'm proud of i mean it's look it's a step in the right direction but uh you know the ncaa is about money the acc is about money this is about money as much uh as sport actually probably more and um you know i mean the ncaa is not about sport it's about perpetuating itself It needs to go, it needs to be burnt down and would let us start over again with something better, something that doesn't penalize poor kids who sell a jersey online, you know, to have a bit of extra money. guys to, you know, run into each other at great speeds, which will, you know, satisfy us all,
0: I suppose. Seems like it. Yeah, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see on that. Um, <laughs> Diane, one final question I want to ask you. Um, this has been a recurring question that we're asking um, all of our authors. Who was your favorite teacher? Oh! <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have such a good answer to that. My favorite okay. teacher was a guy from Manhattan who landed in Tallahassee to teach at Florida State in the late 60s. His name was Jerome Stern. And he was a stranger in a strange land. Um, he had gone to school in the South. He'd gone to UNC Chapel Hill. But I think that Tallahassee with this sort of mad football culture and Sororities and fraternities on campus, you know, I mean, he was a hippie, and he got here, and FSU was kind of a progressive campus, but when I first met him, you know, I was a sorority girl wearing pearls and high heels and stuff to class, as we did in those ancient days. you know uh, I've been well trained at my school um, and, and you know you get these poor teachers they're like oh Jesus this one actually read the book yay Um <laughs> <laughs> shining light and taught many, 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 many good writers who will all say the same thing about him, that we all owe him Raised, um, you know, this—I this, say—this guy came from the Upper West Side. He'd gone to the Bronx High School of Science. There was no football. I mean, I guess Columbia plays football, but no one notices in New York, best I can tell. Poor <laughs> bastards. I mean, you know, football just wasn't a thing. And it was one of the things about the South that I think he just loved and found compelling. And you know, I never said—I never saw him watch a football game. Um, I mean, he was aware of it, but I don't think it interested him as a game, it interested him as a culture. And I think eventually that trickled through my thick skull and I went, oh yeah, that's interesting. Why do we behave this way? What's up with that? And the best teachers put that in your head. Why? I'm a little slow, it took me a while to get there, but I got there in the end. And I give him credit for putting why in my head.
0: I think he definitely would be proud of the book that you've turned out about this well
1: thank you I think he would too I think he'd be amused because he he liked the combination of high learning and, and popular culture <laughs>
0: This has been a lovely chat. Um, I'll let you get back to Hugo, your cat now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. He's in cat jail.
0: Oh, no. (laughs)
1: And uh, again, thank you so much. It was delightful talking
0: to you. All right, Diane, thank you. All right, Michael, bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.